it's worth paying on many levels. The dowry was not a bribe. Please, 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 marry my daughter, please. Oh, no. It was never known that way in and of itself. In the old world, you can see this clearly. The dowry was what the father of the bride gave to his daughter as a gift. The dowry was given to the daughter held by the husband. Hello and welcome to... Uh, why are we talking about rabbits? Yeah, that's this podcast. Rabbits are things that reproduce really quickly on the interwebs. You know, and sometimes you go like, that's really just going to be gone soon and not important. Although it's trying to act really important. Rabbits, they have lots of babies. We have just one baby at a time. A heavy baby that we talk about lightly. And today, that little baby, that thing we're going to use theology, history, and philosophy to talk about, that little idea baby is called a dowry. Old world, new world. What is the dowry? I think we all have ideas, but how does it, what are its implications in the new world? Because there are some. So, here's an old world idea, one that makes many people feel uncomfortable and that kind of feels also dead. Like you really wouldn't want to talk about this idea and associate it, say, with your new world love affair. I'm talking about the notion of a dowry. Yeah. You don't really want to bring that up when you're dating circa 2002-1 in, say, New York City. But what is a dowry? How did it work? How does it work? It's not gone, you know. And what can it tell us about our new world dating game? I think a dowry might be sort of like, um, for many of us, we're going to find out in this pod. It's like Michael Myers, the guy, isn't that the guy in Halloween that kills people, Andrew? Andrew's our producer. Say hi. Hi. He's not actually on with me right now, but he's behind the scenes. Andrew, is it Michael Myers, the crazed knife-wielding brother that keeps trying to kill Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween? I think so. The guy that never really went away? Maybe. Although I'm pretty sure he gets killed every movie. I mean, you're probably right. Ugh. Yeah, a dowry. It kind of hangs around. So first of all, a dowry is different from something called a bride price. A dowry is what the bride's family pays to the groom. A bride price is the cost of getting a wife. The price paid by the groom's family for his wife. Dowry is what the bride pays. Bride price is what the groom pays. That's historically how it works. In our work, First Things Foundation send people overseas and to places here at home, by the way, Appalachia, for example, drop people two years, immersive experience. What we see is what most of human history has practiced, and that's bride price culture. In Mende, West Africa, and the Temnes do this, the Malinke do this, the Bambara do this. Well, they all do it kind of the same way. A boy's family can choose a future wife for him from childhood. However, if the girl does not agree to the choice when she is of age, she has the opportunity to refuse marriage. If she accepts, the man's family will be required to pay her parents a bride price known as Mboya in the Mende tradition. If the bride price is not paid, then any children that this couple has will not be considered property of the woman's family. Sorry, will not be 
considered property of the men's family. If the bride price is not paid, the kids remain the woman's and the woman's family. So the mboya, or bride price, once paid, transfers the family title to the man. That's generally West Africa. In Mayan tradition in Central America, where we work, there are slight differences. But for the most part, the ancient practice of the Maya required a payment from the groom's family. Usually clothing, household articles, you know, regular marriage stuff. Like when you sign up at Target or whatever to have people donate things to you at your marriage time. Similar. Marriage ceremonies, in my tradition, were and still are performed by a priest in the home of the bride's father. After the ceremony, the newlyweds, well, they tend to hang around. Six or seven years, they generally live in with the bride's parents. This is very traditional, right? And during that period, this is very interesting, the groom was required to work for the family as a payment of honor for receiving the wife. Yeah, that's the dowry. So at the beginning of a Mayan relationship, at least in tradition, there's a bride price, and then the husband gives some of his time back as a dowry. So the married couple, well, they eventually would assume the parents' home in Mayan tradition. In the Georgian Republic, Christian tradition going all the way back to the 400s has always allowed a bride price or a type of payment to the bride's family. Today this happens, but only deep up in the mountains of southern or northern Georgia, as most of Georgia now marries folks with the traditional bride price payment being no payment. In other words, Georgian tradition has become very westernized. But where they keep the tradition, there is a bride price. Of course, you may be wondering, are these the cats that do this other thing called bride kidnapping? Yeah, sometimes that happens in Georgia. But it's not, no, it's not Borat kidnapping. If you saw Borat. He was not Georgian. Well, he was not any, he was he's an American guy. But he was not acting as if he was a Georgian. I believe he was a Kazakh. So, but let's just be clear. There is, deep in the mountains of Georgia, the kidnapping bride tradition. And yeah, that's a reaction to bride price. It usually works where two people who want to flout the system because they don't have money, two young lovers whose family have not decided that they should get married, well, they decide for themselves. The kidnapping is staged usually. Sometimes there is a blind kidnapping, it's called, where the, the wife doesn't know. She doesn't really want to go. That's very rare. Usually the, the bride knows. Her young lover kidnaps her and then forces her family to pay a ransom. And that's very interesting because at that point, once the family pays the ransom, the groom now has the money to pay the bride price. That's the concept. But he also probably is going to catch a bullet in the head from some hot-headed uncle. That's bride kidnapping. That's not really one of the traditions I want to talk about. It's a different podcast. 
But so what about the price of these brides in history? How much did a good wife fetch? Well, in the Visigoth lands of what we today call Spain in the ninth century, so 1,200 years ago, a bride was worth about one-tenth of his net worth. So you add up all his cattle, his land, his armor. And a Visigoth, Christian or not, this is right during the whole remelding of Christian Europe, but a Visigoth would pay about one-tenth of his net worth as a bride price. Franks, right around the same time, over in modern day, what we think of as France, but also all across Europe, the Frankish tradition was about one-third of a man's net worth would be what the bride price was. In Zimbabwe today, generally in Africa, in fact, something like 10 cows is a very nice bride price, equaling something like two times annual family income. How about that? These brides ain't cheap in the old world. And Andrew, roll advertisement music here. Speaking of cheap... How about how cheap we at First Things Foundation can work when immersed deep in some pretty isolated and impoverished communities? And we can do that, and we do. Because we live like those we aim to serve, exactly, just simply, however culture looks, we just assume it. We don't drive around in fancy-schmancy cars with, and staying hotels. We live in mud huts, family adobe homes, yeah. Basically, we live like this so we can hear, you know, complicated stuff. Simple living allows us to see the complicated stuff. And then we help local people build beautiful, local, sustainable, authentic projects that serve self and community. That's us. Go today and check out all that we have to offer, including a new restaurant. You can invest in it, sort of. A benefit concert in sunny Naples, Florida. Da-ding! A Change for Changemakers donation platform that gets you into our pod courses. Cha-ching! See you at www.first-things.org. People care about our work. We sure hope you do too. Bride price. Well, that tradition has been around a long time. And so is the dowry tradition. But remember, a dowry is different. And for this pod, it is deeply informative of the old world mindset. As I said, a dowry is what a bride family pays the groom. But here are three other things you should know about the dowry how they work in history, especially now, really, we're talking about Europe. First, the dowry does not belong to the groom's family. Yeah. The dowry is held and controlled by the husband indeed, but it remains the legal property of the bride. It is a trust fund in that sense. Secondly, a woman can get the dowry payment back in the old world, at least in Europe and in Africa. Here's how, in a nutshell. Either her man is a bum and unlawfully puts her away slash divorces her. If he does that, and it's found that he has done that, he owes her the dowry. The other way she can get it is if she dies. Yeah. That was how Christian Europe did it in the old world. For the most part, I'm generalizing. As for Europeans before Christianity, well, they had much more, shall we say, liberal attitudes toward divorce, including our old friends, the Greeks and the Romans. Women could dump their men much easier then, but 
That didn't mean it was always easier for them to recoup their dowry. In fact, when they dumped their man, it was much harder. But they could try. The same goes for most African societies. Women can initiate divorce, but they don't have an easy time getting their bride price back. Sorry, their dowry back. Well, it changes, but that's generally how it works. And here's a third thing you should know about the dowries in history. They were traditionally paid over time, like in installments, say like life insurance in the United States today. And well, that's where things often would get a little dicey. You can imagine, right, an old world family trying to pay off the dowry of their daughter, right? Here's $10,000. Thank you for marrying our daughter, but we'll pay it $2,000 over the next five years. That's kind of how it would work, right? And you can imagine the groom's family taking some of that money and investing it or perhaps investing their own money to try to build, say, a new farmhouse and a really cool chimney. And let's say that the wife's dad back over in little village A, well, he misses a few payments just as they're trying to build their new chimney. Yikes. Marital stress, a lot of it, oof. Overall, though, when it comes to a dowry, what we are seeing in this little heavy thing, lightly conversation is that the dowry and the bride price were and are investments. They're investments, and that's how they're known, right, to the fathers of the bride who are paying them. And they could become known In fact, as a type of servitude payment, it could be seen as a type of slavery payment, but it is clear in history that that is not how the parties understood it. Did people turn it into that? Heck yeah. But the dowry itself was never conceived as, here, take my daughter as a slave. Can't wait to pay you. In the simplest sense, the dowry was a protection against future calamity. Yeah. Fathers, way back then, you know, they loved their daughters too. But why did some societies practice dowry and not bride price and vice versa? This is interesting. The key here is to understand labor and the means of labor in the older, more egalitarian, but less complex societies. In, call it hunter and gatherer societies, right? When a woman changed home, she was expected to take part in all kinds of types of agricultural labor. I saw this often in Mali. But even though it's really hard work, historians, anthropologists, sociologists, they would call this low-impact labor, light labor, hand harvesting, winnowing, storage. I saw all this in West Africa, and we see it. This type of agricultural labor is expected of a woman in the very old world. And so a marriage to a woman becomes an investment in this type of labor. But if farm work demands heavier implements, say oxen and heavy yoke, a ton of metallurgy to make the new implements, well, the value of a woman in terms of light labor in the field goes down. At least that's how it works in the minds of the bride price price point makers. And in history, this means a shift in the way marriage and the bride is valued. 
Eurasian societies began to shift from the bride price culture to dowry culture in late antiquity. You can see that Europe in general starts to adopt dowry culture during the Greek Golden Age and right through to Byzantium and the medieval period in Western Europe. And then as Europe begins to adopt all types of Enlightenment-style mechanical inventions, things like the Iron Plow and the McCormick Reaper, the late 1700s, early 1800s, we begin to see dowries grow bigger and bigger. But wait, why? It works like this. As women are understood to be less and less helpful out in the fields, the amount of money they have to pay to get married goes up and up. So the dad has to pay more because the daughter can do less on the farm. Or so it seems. In some ways, in modernity, as we get closer to what we call the light people revolution and the enlightenment, the woman is being seen as a bigger and bigger liability. Or simply put, her value has gone down as a laborer. And this helps us understand why the dowry system started to dominate Europe just as society began to stratify and farming became more of an implement in a heavy machinery game. Right? The dowry, the payment of the woman to the man, becomes bigger as the woman is seen as less of an asset in the field. Uh-huh. See, less egalitarian societies, societies that are more stratified, richer and poorer top to bottom, they create opportunities for status upgrades just because there's a place to go. Right? In simple hunter and gathering societies, <clears throat> kind of everybody's the same on some level. There are very few, what we should say, uh, royalty in such society. There might be a chief, but. But where things are real stratified and complex, you can see that there's a way to rise up, even if it's a hard way. But you can. And rising up means marrying up. So in stratified societies with clear demarcations of class, who you married could change how you lived. In that way, a dowry society made the individual a bit more essential to the marriage equation because, well... A wife could do things for a man that he couldn't do for himself. Farming now, with heavy equipment, a bit more cash on hand, the man could handle that. But he still needed a wife. Because he needed babies. And some other stuff. So it's like this. A wife was important to a man in two basic ways in the most simple hunter and gatherer societies. The two ways, babies and labor. And a man was important to a wife and her family in those societies in two simple ways, protection and babies. The simple society equation was simple. But as societies became more complex and stratified, stratified here meaning you can move up and down. And because you can move up and down, there's degrees and levels of stature. And in this you can see that a wife becomes valued in a more complex and stratified ways. First, a pretty wife on your arm at a party suddenly has new meaning, especially in a society where a man is trying to elevate himself. You see, at that point, he has a trophy, and not just because his girl is good in the fields. Second, in Europe, for the most part, Marriage meant monogamy. 
at least on the face of it all. And monogamy meant you got one shot at having a wife. You weren't getting divorced, buddy. And if that is the case, a man and his family are going to become much more picky when it comes to choosing a wife. In fact, they might become downright demanding. And so you can see in that story the outlines of the dowry culture being formed. Social stratification and mobility combined with Christian monogamy and piety created a Europe where... If the family of the groom could get the right woman to buy in and be his wife, he literally could get a pile of money into this new thing he called a bank account. That's the dowry. That's Jane Austen. But why would a society, a group of families, want to change from getting paid to marry their daughters to paying to marry their daughters? Hmm. Well, retirement plan. You see, it's just an investment. It's worth paying on many levels. The dowry was not a bribe. Please, 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 marry my daughter, please. Oh, no. It was never known that way in and of itself. In the old world, you can see this clearly. The dowry was what the father of the bride gave to his daughter as a gift. The dowry was given to the daughter held by the husband. It's a 401k retirement plan for her and her children. The husband never owned the dowry. It's the wife's security unto death. Look at the Code of Hammurabi. Even way back, 1700 BC, even in that Code of Hammurabi, the oldest law code known to history, you can see the outlines of this. Look at Code 137. Quote, If a man has to set his face to put away his woman who has borne him children, or his wife who has granted him children, to that woman who he has put away, he shall return to her the marriage portion and shall give her the field, the garden, and the goods. And she shall bring up her children, and she shall then marry the husband of her choice. Whoa, those Sumerians back in the... Middle East, 3,000 years ago, those cats, what? That's very interesting. An early stratified society, by the way. Here's Law Code 138 from Hammurabi. Quote, if a man has put away his bride who has not borne him children, he shall pay her the marriage portion, which she brought from her father's house. Oh. So no kids? Get your money back. Interesting. That goes for even if the male in this very, very male-dominant society, if the male was unable to have kids, she got her money back. And check this out. From the same code of Hammurabi, in this code, 139, it's clear that the wife, if she dies early, the husband may not inherit the original dowry. That's right. He has to give it to the children. And I think you're seeing the earliest example of what a dowry in the middle, in the minds of the old worlders, what it was all about. They're simply trying to make sense of how to survive in a difficult world. The dowry is a pre-mortem inheritance for daughters. The sons receive a post-mortem inheritance from their father. 
Daughters got theirs when they married. Sons got theirs after their dad died. Right? And here's something kind of wacky. Studies from the old world, European societies in particular, show that dowries paid out before the father's death in general were valued at about 80% of the son's inheritance. So ladies got their payment during life. It wasn't quite the same value as a man's inheritance. Well, 20% difference. That had to do with all kinds of things, but primarily had to do with the economic outcomes of their father's lives. Because it's very likely that the father got wealthier after he paid out the dowry, because he still had life to live. So you can see all this economics is, it's definitely pushing hard on this tradition of the, the dowry. So, in many societies, including much of the colonial New World societies, the dowry in the end could be evaluated as, at as much as two times the son's inheritance. That happened in Brazil, Argentina, and much of Central America. But for the most part, the dowry came in at under the total value of any particular son's inheritance. But what's all this got to do with the New World, the world we live in? Well, this brings me to my old pal, Uncle Seth. Go back and look at one of our regular meetings together here on this podcast, Uncle Seth. Uncle Seth and his family save a ton of money for their daughter's education. Like, it's a real thing. They do that. And I think that's not weird for many of you out there listening to this. You probably do the same thing. Education a pile of cash sitting somewhere waiting to be given to your children, well, that's an inheritance plan. When you say for a kid's education, it is for their inheritance. You just don't think of it as a dowry. We think of it as normal. And most of all, we think of it as gender neutral, marriage neutral, as somehow egalitarian, as something for a person with a name, one person, namely my kid with her own name, a kid unattached to some dude. It's for her, and it's for a good cause, right? The thing that will give her a leg up. I mean, it's education. Everyone can see just how good that is in 2021 in America, right? Few people think hateful thoughts when a parent says they have a college fund ready for their kids, even if that fund means that the parent must spend every waking moment at work, and away from the kid that would go to college one day, right? I mean, before you go to college, you spent 18 years living. And many of us spent 18 years away from that kid working. But still, few people think, what a pig, this guy working so hard for his kid's education while destroying the very life together they have right now. What a pig. Nah, that's not how we think, because we think into the future, right? This kind of dowry makes sense to us light people because it offers entry into a world we see as goodly. A good education will make for a good life, a very goodly life, a godly life. Hmm. And well, that's how it was in the old world too. The dowry told your daughter you loved her because you did. The difference was the investment was in the married life not the academic life, see? 
You were investing in the married life. The highest form of success in the old world was found in the rite of marriage. The ritual of marriage. Which goes a long way in explaining why marriage rates are falling all around the light people world. Success is no longer caught up in who you marry. It's not even caught up in being married. Getting married isn't the same as being good. Not anymore. Right? It's not caught up in reaching a goal called marriage. Now, all of our deeply committed investments, they're just, they're in ourselves. They're in our individual personhood, our individual experiences, our jobs. Those are the goodly things. Those are the goods. And for those things, those fulfilling things that we've agreed on as a community, as a new world culture, for those things, there will always be dowries. The question is, what will you invest your dowry in? Where will you drop your dowry so that it might serve a purpose? Dowries, I think, are inevitable. It's just we give them a different name. And that leads me to the thought, to you the victory, Gagi Marjos. That's right. That's often said at a super table, sometimes called a KP. You can find one of those, by the way, at our restaurant in Greenville, South Carolina. That's our pod for today. Thank you for coming. Watar is produced by Andrew Schwark. Andrew's out there. Say hi, Andrew. Daniel Paternos helps him. And our pod is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation. That's a nonprofit. We've already told you about it in the intro, but just on our way out, www.first-things.org. Share Watar. Hit us up. Go check out our stuff. You don't just give to a nonprofit that really does cool work at First Things. You get a lot of cool stuff when you give. Nakvamdis, hasta luego, kombufo. Peace out. <laughs>